This is a show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Greetings, everybody. This is Richard Solomon, another week of Taking Care of Business on 88.1 FM WCWP, WCWP WCWP.org. We have a very special show today. We are with Dr. Herbert Ausubel, whose real last name should be Awesome, because he's got a lot of great, fantastic information. He's one of those people who, when you meet, you recognize that he is just an intellectual powerhouse. So without further ado, uh, welcome to our show. Thank you. Okay. So I know that you're a medical doctor and a historian. So let's talk a little bit about the medical doctor part. Okay. Okay. I know you're a Harvard med graduate. True. And in the field of hematology, oncology. Correct. Which probably has all kinds of challenges. Most assuredly. And hopefully my daughter will find the final solution to that. She's working on immune cancer research at City of Hope in California and is working on using the immune system to destroy the cancer. Wow. And do you work, are, are any other members of your immediate family in the medical business with or without you? Oh, yes. A goodly number. I have uh, nephews. Uh, I have cousins. Uh, Frederick Orsabel is considered the father of genetic engineering. Uh, on my Sephardic ancestry side, Dr. Solomon Silva was the first physician ever to use radioactive iodine in the treatment of thyroid disease and a whole host of other members of the family in the medical profession over a period of centuries. Wow, centuries. Now, let's talk about that, because mo- most people, like, I'm a lawyer, but I, I, you know, I'm the first in the family who's a lawyer, so we don't really go back centuries. Uh, so tell me about the centuries of medicine in, the, in, the, in your family. Well, I'll give you an example of, in a sense, not being a physician, but being a healer. Now, my name in Hebrew is Chaim Yaakov, Azabel. I'll tell you later why I'm You tell me Azabel. now. Okay. Tell me now. Azabel. We were the Spice family from the Temple of Solomon. If you read the rules of the Temple of Solomon, you were forbidden to enter the temple if you had been in the presence of the dead or in a contaminated area until you cleanse yourself with hyssop. Of course, there was another item added to that bowl of water, and that was the ashes of a pure red heifer. I'm not sure exactly what the heifer was doing, but I know what the hyssop was doing, because in the 20th century, we've discovered that hyssop has antiseptic properties. So our family probably had figured out that hyssop would reduce the spread of disease. After all, there were loads of people dying of illness, and if you had been in the presence of the dead, for example, you remember the Hebra Kedusha, the burial society, uh, you were potentially contaminated with all sorts of germs. Of course, they didn't know the germ theory. It was based upon observation. Okay. And so you could not enter the temple until that was done. And so our family, being the spice merchants who delivered hyssop to the temple, received the name Azov Ale. Azov being hyssop, Ale being God. We were the hyssop of God. And so the title of book one of my series is called The Flower of God. Ah, now here's a question for you. Where'd they get the hyssop? The hyssop came from the Galilee. And as a matter of fact, in the final chapter in Book One, Flower of God, I, it, is enti- it is titled Home. And at that point in time, my wife and I and our children are on one of our many trips to Israel. And we were in the Galilee, 
and I discovered the hyssop plant, this blue flowering plant. And so I picked up the petals of this flower and showered on myself with the hyssop, the cleansing properties of the spice which my family produced 3,000 years ago. The flower of God had come home. Is, is, where is hyssop made today? Is it still made in Israel, and does it still have a current medical use? Oh, it still can be used. Now we have a purulator when you come into the hospital. Mind you, this is only in the, in the late 20th century and early 21st century that we discovered that if you cleanse yourself with antiseptic substances, when before you go into a hospital room, you will reduce the spread of illness. Well, I'll tell you a quick little story. My mother told me that at the time the babies of my generation were being born, the physicians were smoking in the delivery room. <laughs> so, well, so hopefully we've better. come a long way. <laughs> no, we, we have come a long way. I mean, for example, you take something like cholesterol. Uh, when I went to Harvard Medical School, which was considered the leading medical school in the world, they thought that cholesterol was normal up to 300. It and could have been. <laughs> what they were doing is saying that since the average person has a cholesterol up to 300, that was okay. That was a pile of nonsense. Uh, the fact of the matter is that if you, when you are born, you have an LDL of 30 to 35. Wow. If you kept your LDL down to 50 or below during your entire lifetime, coronary heart disease would virtually cease to exist as a major clinical entity. And how, and how, and how, since I, I'm over 50 in my LDL or whatever, what's a, what's a good secret to trying to get it down? Well, number one, of course, is diet and lifestyle. Primitive man. There are people today still living like primitive man. The paleo diet? Hunter-gatherers. And okay. they walk 40 to 50 miles every day searching for something to eat. So they have the best physical fitness <laughs> program Jack LaLanne could ever dream of. And in addition, they don't eat meat very often because it's very hard to catch an animal when you're only uh, attacking them with a stick and a stone. And as a result, they have LDLs down below 50. When you do a post-mortem examination on such people, even if they've lived to the age of 60 or more, you find clean coronary arteries. As a matter of fact, today, I'll give you present scientific knowledge. By the time you are 10, the average individual, assuming you didn't become a butterball, has an LDL of 70. If a child is tragically killed in an automobile accident, at the age of 10, you will find lipid streaks in the blood vessel wall. Some fat has already gotten across the blood vessel wall. So you say, well, that's normal. No, because these people do not have any lipid streaks in their vessel walls, even if they die at the age of 70. So how do we know that you can get rid of that cholesterol? The first study showing a reduction in plaque by intravascular ultrasound, a technique for being able to tell in a living human being whether he has fat below the artery wall, was the asteroid study in which they got LDLs down to 61. And there you had a reduction in plaque, a reduction in this fat in the artery wall, even after you've had fat in the artery wall before. So my magic number is to get below 70. My personal number runs to about 46. Wow. And That's not by accident. Now, diet is very important. So is that you on the Cross Island Parkway walking around looking for berries and little, little, <laughs> not, little not quite. rabbits? And <laughs> but the, the, uh, the other technique, since I'm, for better or for worse, I'm living in the modern age as an American. So while I 
eat mostly a vegetarian diet uh, with all sorts of things, which I'll be happy to email you uh, in sure. terms of my diet and lifestyle, which is 26 pages long. Sign I don't sell it. <laughs> I, I just give it away. In any case, oh, I also take a statin, in my case, to make sure that my LDL is down there well below 50. So you want to go from like, you know, 50 to, to 20. <laughs> well, I even had a cardiac catheterization a few years ago. Uh, because they thought that uh, I was having some discomfort, which turned out to be gallbladder. And I was over 75 years of age, and I had perfectly clean coronary arteries, not one area of narrowing in any coronary arteries. Wow, wow that's great. Well, so look, I, I know that we're going off topic here, but whenever, whenever you have a fascinating guest with interesting information, there's always a little veering off to the left or to the right or to the middle. What, what's the story with red yeast rice? I hear, I hear from some people that that's a... a, a good statin equivalent, and then I hear from other people, eh, you're better off with the more traditional stuff. Well, those may lower cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol a little. Uh, the statins, for example, uh, the largest selling one on the market today is uh, Lipitor. Lipitor, and the one that's probably the mo- a little more potent than that, Crestor, uh, these can lower LDL cholesterols by 50%. So we're talking about major may reduction, not talking about a reduction of 3 or 4% or 5%. Nevertheless, uh, there are many things we've learned. For example, brown rice is way better than white rice. Brown ri- to, to make white rice from brown rice, they get rid of all the coating, which contains all the vitam- minerals and vitamins and stuff that's of use. So what you have with the white rice is pure carbohydrate. Right, which is why you're always hungry afterwards, because you probably have an insulin you know, shock yeah. and then a dip down. Now, the, uh, it's interesting. People can be ahead of their time. When I trained with Dr. Elliot Jocelyn, who was the leading diabetologist in the 20th century, he wrote in 1926, diabetes is a disease of fat. You say, how come? They knew about insulin as well. He went on, too much fat in the food, too much fat in the waistline, too much fat in the bloodstream, resulting in too much fat in the walls of arteries. And from all that fat, most diabetics die. And when I spoke to diabetologists when I came back to New York, now Dr. Jocelyn, when I worked with him, was about 80-some-odd years of age. They said, Dr. Jocelyn, he's an antique, as if just because he's an old man, his ideas are prehistoric and no relevance to the modern world. Of course, the studies done in the 1990s proved that what Dr. Jocelyn taught me in 1950 we're 100% correct. But in case you thought Dr. Jocelyn was the first man to discover that, there was a, a physician by the name of Moses Maimonides. I've heard of him. <laughs> who wrote eight, 900 years ago, if you wish to extend, he didn't write in English, but I'm translating. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you wish to extend the length of your days, exercise until breathless and avoid fatty food. He figured that out. Eight, nine hundred years ago. Obviously, he wasn't doing cholesterol studies. Well, obviously, the people with the deep fryers wanted to keep that quiet. <laughs> <laughs> but he, uh, of course, that's the first half of his phrase. The second half of his quote was, but if you wish to improve the quality of your days, learn the ways of God. Okay, so a little physical, a little spiritual. Drill. So let's move to the spiritual for a few minutes, because even though we could probably do a separate, unique show just about longevity and all the secrets of good health and maybe some of the things in hematology, but let's go back to the flower of God. You have a very interesting lineage. You can trace yourself all the way back to the ancient temple. Temple of Solomon. Okay, but 
you're here now. So the question is, how did that path go from Jerusalem to Brookville, New York? Okay. That would be uh, actually a lot of the earlier material I got from Nathan Orsabel, my father's cousin who was considered the leading historian on the Jewish people in the 20th century. Nathan had been able to trace them all the way back to the Temple of Solomon, but I'll go in a backwards direction. So who did he talk to to get all this information? He had traveled all around the world before he wrote The History of the Jewish People. Actually, it's called The Pictorial History of the Jewish People. And so when he was in Turkey, he spoke to a Dr. Abraham Galanta, who had written a multi-volume series on the Jews of Anatolia, which, of course, today would be called Turkey. The Turks at that time were living in Central Asia, and there were other peoples living in what we call today Turkey. In any case, there was evidence of the Azevales in the city of Sardis, which was the capital of the Lydian Empire. We're talking about going back 2,400 years. Then there was evidence of the Azevales being in Ephesus, which was probably the, uh, the most magnificent city in the western half of the world uh, going back 2,000 years. They had an apothecary shop on the Marble Way, and apparently they delivered medicines, to the Temple of Aesculapius, the Kedusha sign, the two snakes and the two sticks, was at the Temple of Aesculapius. Going back further, he had found evidence of them in Persia, and apparently one of my family was employed by a king of Persia as an emissary to the Lydian Empire. They did employ uh, some minorities, as a matter of fact, uh, of course, the uh, Passover, uh, a Purim, we deal with uh, Queen Esther, who actually was in Persia. Before that, they were in Babylonian exile. Now we're going back 2,500 years ago. And that's when they went into exile from Judea, after the Babylonians had conquered Judea. Sixty years after the conquest, Ezra got permission to bring them back to Israel, to Judea, but many stayed on because they had been there 60 years as a new generation. They felt comfortable. And so that's how we got the Iraqi Jewish diaspora, and then eventually the Persian-Jewish diaspora when the Persians conquered the Babylonians. Now, I'll start off when I was a child. You are listening to Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon, 88.1 FM, WCWP.org. I am with Dr. Herbert Osabel, who I call Dr. Awesome, but <laughs> please continue. <laughs> now, when I was a child, I was born in a three-generational household. My father had come to the United States in 1921, after the first post-war one anti-Semitic riots. His mother had recognized the handwriting on the wall. My father, being the eldest and brightest child, was instructed to go to America, along with the second son, and to work and save and bring over all his father, all his father, mother, and all his sisters and brothers, which they dutifully did. Now, my grandmother was then dying of cancer, and so she instructed my father that after her death, he was to take care of the, his father, and the rest of his siblings. And so my father, just having gotten married, uh, then uh, brought his father and younger siblings that weren't yet married uh, into the household. Now, my grandfather was one of my several roommates. We were not well-to-do. As a matter of fact, I was born at home. My father and mother engaged the services of a physician to come to the house to deliver me. They couldn't afford a hospital. And for five bucks, I was delivered. (laughs) Apparently, the doctor was a little under the weather, uh, with a little uh, flavor on his uh, breath, smelling more like alcohol. And apparently, according to my parents, I don't remember the occasion, uh, as he was 
taking me out of the womb, I slipped and landed headfirst on the floor. I guess it shook some sense into me because it doesn't seem to have severely impaired me in terms of my intellect. Now, my grandfather was one of my roommates, and he would tell me stories that his grandfather told him, that his grandfather told him, that his grandfather told him. Now, I was a very precocious child, intellectually. I was very small. I was uh, looked at least two years younger than I really was. But my grandfather would tell me a story, and I would try to figure out, since I read history books, when this story took place. And I was able to go back all the way back to the 1500s, just on stories handed down by word of mouth in the family over the centuries. Now, then when I met Nathan Orsabel years later, um, he told me about the family all the way back to the Temple of Solomon. And then when he was in his last stages of life, realizing that uh, there was not much time left to him, he gave me all the information that he had acquired on the family all the way back to the Temple of Solomon. And then my next job for the next 32 years was to travel all around the world to A, to visit the places where they dwelled in order to get the feeling of what it was like in those areas, B, to search for further uh, information to document the things that I had learned, And finally, I had to create the speech because, for example, you read about World War II and the Holocaust. You read that six million Jews were slaughtered. It is a horrific number, but it's a number. You read the story of an Anne Frank, and you say, why would people do this to decent human beings? And by identifying with the people in the story that is being told, you get a further perception of the wrong that was done and a further desire to correct that sort of human behavior so that we treat each other as fellow decent human beings, as brothers and sisters, rather than as roaches to be slaughtered. Or rats, as the or Nazis. rats, yeah, anything. As the, the uh, Nazis portrayed the Jewish I mean, people. when they, there was one book in which they have, a, in this one picture, here is a German soldier, sends back to his family a picture of himself shooting a bullet through a child's head with the blood splattered, He has to picture this child as a roach, a rat. What? How could any human being do such a thing, let alone send this as a picture of honor to his children? I'm used to, like, greetings from Hawaii. (laughs) You know, that's the the kind of photos I send. uh, It's it's really kind of unimaginable. But, uh, you know, my ancestry is from Greece, and the Jews of Greece were rounded up in March of 1944, and there were many stories that I heard from people in the community uh, all, along those lines, uh, shocking and horrifying. In fact, uh, I did have the good fortune of meeting um, a woman. I'll just her, her first name is Miriam, and she's a Holocaust survivor from Poland, and uh, she's 97 years old. And I, I did interview her for this show, and it was really quite spectacular to see someone who survived uh, a lot of problems and, and overcome a lot of challenges. And she's 97 years strong today. Well, the I remember going to a play just a couple of years ago. And there's this uh, woman who was non-Jewish, blonde-haired and blue-eyed, and um, in one of the countries that was conquered by the Germans. And she hid at grave risk a number of Jews in the basement of this house. And that was grave risk, believe me. And 
this is a woman who far more deserved the peace prize than, if you'll pardon the expression, some of the people who <laughs> received the peace prize, who, to the best of my knowledge, have not done anything that has changed the world in a peaceful direction. So, so, so okay, so you went around the world looking for all the people who were a part of your personal family history, and what did you uncover uh, that we haven't really talked about yet? What's, what's some of the surprises, the, well, the unique insights, the aha moments? I'll give you an example. My grandfather, at his wife's advice, they went to Vienna. But many Jews in these eastern towns of Galicia, when the Russians came in in 1914, were fearful that they'd lose all their possessions if they ran away. And so my granduncle, the second son of my great-grandfather, remained there with his wife and ten children. Now, you hardly read about this in any history book. The Russians then proceeded to round up the Jews. Now, what Jews are they rounding up? The Jews of military age are in the army like everyone else who's been drafted. They're they're pulling together the old, the sick, the women, and the children. They were force-marched out of Galicia to a place called Zakhalkov, which was in the Russian-ruled province of Lublin. Those who could not keep up, as some of them couldn't, they were old and feeble or sick, were used for bayonet practice. It made the Bataan death march look like a joyous occasion, by comparison. Then they reached Zakhalkov, where they were put in a large enclosure surrounded by barbed wire. No housing, no food. But the crowds were getting larger and larger as thousands more Jews arrived. They then shipped them in sealed boxcars to central Siberia, to an area called Tartarsk, where the people were mostly Tartars, so they looked like uh, Chinese Mongol. And then they were dumped off in the snow with the admonition they could do whatever they want except go home. And to make sure they didn't go home, they stationed Russian troops to the west of this area to keep any Jew from taking a four or 5,000-mile hike back to Galicia. Of perhaps 100,000 Jews so sent to Siberia, Probably less than a thousand survived the war. I mean, how could you survive living, living, uh, standing, freezing to death with freezing to death with no food, no shelter, no clothing? Now, my granduncle figured they wouldn't survive, and he knew he couldn't go west because the first couple of Jews that started walking in that direction were shot. You'd say, how would they know who's a Jew? It might be a local. Well, the people in this area, as I mentioned, were Tatar. So, if you looked like a man with a beard and payas. Or if you were a woman with a, a babushka who was Caucasian, they knew you were not one of the local Tatars, so they'd shoot you. So he proceeded to walk south with his wife and ten children across the mountains of Siberia, all the way into Mongolia. By the time he reached Mongolia, six of the children had perished. Wow. They then went into a Mongol village, and it was interesting. They, were, they had brought their tools along because he was a carpenter, and two sons had been training to become carpenters. And because they didn't know when they were being shipped off that they figured they'd have to earn a living somewhere. In any case, uh, the Mongols engaged their services in this village to help them build a uh, lamastery. The Mongols are Buddhist. And they, their tuts, their huts are made like sticks curved around and then with uh, felt uh, put above it to uh, cover it. But they had no skill at building a building two stories high or three stories high for a lamastery. 
And so they engaged their services of my family members to build this monastery. And they promised them after that they would take them to the capital of Mongolia where they could take a road south into China. Finally, when they got there, uh, they were uh, finished. The, uh, they were brought into the capital. By this point in time, there was a revolution in Russia, and the Red Army had controlled that part of Siberia, and the White Army of the Tsar uh, had fled into the capital of Mongolia, using that as a base. Who should arrive in town? A Mongol band, but with a few Jews. Like, big deal. <laughs> a, a poor man and his wife and a couple of kids. They wanted them to turn the Jews over to them. To their honor, the Mongols refused to turn them over to them. So they instructed my, and they held them off at gunpoint. Wow. So the Russians knew that they weren't going to get these few Jews without losing a couple of men in the process. So it wasn't worth it for them. No. So they proceeded to walk south across the Gobi Desert, a thousand miles of desert. So they went from freezing cold to burning hot. hot. And, well, it's, it can get cold in the Gobi Desert, too. Yeah, nighttime, yeah. But the, um, they lost another child on that trip. And so they were down to a father, mother, and three children. And now they've arrived in Inner Mongolia, which has a, a large mixture of population, mostly Mongol, but some Chinese. And I won't go through all the details in their trip through China. In any case, it took them seven years. By the time they reached Shanghai, they were down to a father and two sons. Wow. And so they told their story in the synagogue. There were some Jews in the trading community, and the people had pity on them, and they raised some money to put them on a tramp steamer going to Australia. The father eventually passed away at the age of 97 or so, and the two sons had to survive. Now, I won't go through the tales of how we were able to communicate with one another, the branch in the United States, my father and so forth, and the branch that had been in Australia. And Wh- so Why not? Tell me. The, they, what happened was, during the travels, they also had stayed in a uh, mission in, in um, China, and they were doing some work fixing the roofing. They always had to find a job as a carpenter in some fashion. And so they knew that my grandfather had gone to Vienna. So they had, through the priest there, had communication with people in Vienna and they eventually found out that my father had come to the United States, and so they were able to have communication uh, with my father in the United States, my father being the head of the family tree. In any case, they now went down to Australia. The two sons could never, whatever damage had been done to them, have children. And so after the father passed away, you had the two sons, and my son, who's now one of my partners in practice, Dr. Ian Orsabell, was traveling with the youth orchestra to Australia, and I asked them to please go and visit them. They were located in a uh, subdivision of Melbourne, Australia, called Balaclava. Okay. And so they visited them, and they hated to see him leave because he was the first member of the family they had seen since World War I. Wow. And, but he wanted to go back to the United States. He does have a family here. And they told him a very interesting statement. We are a dying twig of a once mighty branch. It is up to you to give life to the tree. And that was their last words to him before he left. Now, my wife and I went to visit them years later, and we used to communicate by uh, mail. Then I stopped receiving mail from them. 
as I was sending the mail. So on one of our trips in Turkey, we met a couple who came from Melbourne, Australia, and we asked them to find out what happened to my cousins. And they sent us back uh, a couple of months later a picture of the gravesite. The older brother had died at 102 and the younger at 98. Wow. And that was the last of our family So in, in Australia. So this is just an example of part of the searching we did over a period of 32 years for the book. Okay, hold on a second. All right, this is moving. This is lightning fast radio just for station ID purposes and to for anybody who's joining us, this is Richard Solomon. Thank you for being here, of course. You're listening to 88.1 FM, WCWP. Uh, you can catch us at WCWP.org. I should say it a little bit slower, but WCWP.org. We're going to be right back in one minute. We just have to take a quick, hard break here. Don't go anywhere. We're with Dr. Arsabelle, and uh, we'll be right back. Hi, this is Anastasia Zotos from Athens, Greece, and we listen to Richard Solomon on our computers, and we love it. This is Richard Solomon. You're listening to Taking Care of Business. You can catch us at WCWP.org. If you would like to send an email to me on any topic at all, including uh, what you're listening to today, the email for us, of course, as always, is tcbradiowcwp at yahoo.com. We love your comments, emails, faxes, phone calls. Uh, we have people listening from all over the world. We have people listening in, in Ireland and at the Dolphin Discovery Center in the Caribbean. And it's just really cool to know that there's a worldwide audience. But here we have a worldwide <clears throat> historian of the Jewish diaspora, uh, particular to a, a family of uh, very learned people. That's Dr. Herbert <clears throat> Osabel, pardon me, who traces his roots back to the ancient Temple of Solomon, uh, possibly a relation uh, of mine, <laughs> although <laughs> maybe just a namesake. And uh, <clears throat> we were continuing. So you you traced your roots back to a, a, a branch that kind of ended in Australia, and now you're picking up the... The baton, if you will. Yes. Well, my goal was to tell the stories of all these people as a microcosm of the history of the Jewish people. The Jewish people have been on all six continents. Actually, by the time book six of my six-volume series is in publication, actually I've written all six, but book one is now the first one on the market. It's just a matter of pumping them all out. That uh, it will be one by one by one. And the sum of the experiences in the six books will cover the Jewish experience in three millennia. For example, book six is the music. My wife comes via her father from one of the great heritages in terms of classical music, uh, accomplished musicians over a period of centuries of world-class nature. Any names? Hints? Oh, sure. You know, uh, can't leave me hanging like this. <laughs> there, there was, uh, in his world tour, uh, Arturo Toscanini engaged uh, my late father-in-law as his principal cellist. Oh, wow. Uh, before that, he, he was in the Philadelphia Orchestra. This is my late father-in-law. Whose name was? Isidore Gusikov. Okay. And Stakovsky, the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra, probably the most famous of the conductors of the Philadelphia Orchestra, once, when quoted to the press, said, a Gusikov in an orchestra is like sterling on silver. At that time, the following positions were held by Gusikovs. The concertmaster, the principal cellist, the second cellist, the principal trombonist, 
the principal trumpetist and the principal percussionist, as well as the associate conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra. At the same generation, their cousins in Russia held first chairs in violin and cello, two of them in Moscow and two in Leningrad, the two major symphonies of the Soviet Union. So these, now they were descendants of Michael Joseph Kusikov, who, interestingly enough, was started life as a flutist. But he developed tuberculosis at an early age, and it's very hard to play a flute when you're coughing up blood. And he really had tuberculosis. He then developed a new instrument called the Strohfiddle, which was the ancestor of the modern xylophone. And he composed works of music for orchestra, with the Strohfiddle being the lead instrument. And he would use klezmerin, of course, members of his family, as the members of the orchestra. And they became renowned all over Europe. And he was an Orthodox Jew with a strammel and paeus, the little side curls. And the, there was a, uh, in Paris, it became the rage to, for the women to have a, a coiffure à la gusico, which was the side curls, down, <laughs> imitating this poor sickly Jew who died collapsing after a performance uh-huh. at the, in his early 30s. Oh, wow, that's, that's tragic because of his tuberculosis. He played his last note and then went clunk. Wow. Where was the hyssop? He needed hyssop. No, no, no. (laughs) That was another branch of the ancestral family. That's that's where they needed to all connect up. Book five, which may be the the next one that I will have published. My wife is co-author of that. And book five is called The Ethics. You see, my mother-in-law's maiden name had been Alice de Palon. You say, what kind of a crazy name is this for a Jewish girl whose family had come from Russia? They were descendants of a fellow by the name of Eugene de Pallon, who was the eldest son of the Count de Pallon. And he was a colonel in the Napoleonic army, a warrior who enjoyed conquering and killing. And there he was on the retreat from Moscow, as wounded and left for dead, as was many, many, many a Frenchman. The Grand Army started out with 600,000. By the time they left Russia, they were down to about 14,000. He was found by a Jewish girl who pleaded with the family to take him back and nurse him back to health. Now, this was a grave risk. Had they been caught harboring a Frenchman, the whole family would have had their necks slit. So they had to hide him, and they went through all sorts of adventures to keep him from being discovered. In fact, one day, they kept him uh, in front of the fireplace to and one of the neighbors, who ironically enough had the wonderful name of Yenta, <laughs> came into the house. <laughs> Yenta being gossip in the English language. And uh, he was there, and the, the girl who had found him um, was there with one of her sisters, because you never have one girl alone, a single girl with, with a man. It's always a, a chaperone somewhere. Disgraceful. She rushed, she had a bowl of berries in her hand, some red berries. She squeezed her fingers into the red berries and popped them on her face to make it look like scarlet fever. And she jumped on the mat in front of him, hiding him under her, and pulled a cover over her so only her face with the red speckles was showing. And the mother said to the neighbor, Yenta, better get out of the house. There's scarlet fever. You'll die. Don't let anyone from the town come into this house because I don't want half the village dead with, with, with scarlet fever. And so that's the way they kept him hidden. Well, he fell in love with the young lady, 
he had mentioned that to the father, that he had grown fond of the daughter, and the father says, listen, you're a French nobleman, you're the oldest son of a count, you tell me that you live in a house with 50 some odd rooms, uh, when the war is over, you'll go, God bless you, back to France, and you'll marry some nice French girl. My daughter, when she's of age, she'll marry a nice Jewish boy, and that'll be the end of it. Whether that was the reason, or just, and he wondered why they had put themselves in such grave danger to save a total unconscious stranger. And the father said that in the Talmud we are taught that to save one life is to save the world entire. And since he was a fellow human being, they had an obligation to do what they could to save him. And so he then studied Judaism, and he had himself circumcised, went through a bull, for the full tuition, and the full <laughs> conversion. And after the war was over, he wrote back to his friend, father in France, informing him that he hadn't died, that he'd been rescued by this Jewish family, that he had studied Judaism, he'd become a Jew, and he married a Jewish girl, and his father wrote back one letter. Oy vey. <laughs> I will picture that my son died nobly in battle in the snows of Russia for the glory of France. As far as you, the person who's written this letter to me, I want nothing further to do with you. And so he didn't go back to France. And so that's the first chapter of the ethics, because it reflected the ethics of Judaism that prompted him to become a Jew. And so I tell the stories of his descendants reflecting the ethical aspects of the Judaic experience. So wait, wait. So you got the, the Count's son and the Scarlet Fever girl. They get married. Right. And then so what happens? How's that? Oh, well, they have children. Right. But and where they had, you know, where? The, no, the children were there for two generations. And I tell a number of stories like a, a bakery in Minsk, uh, which is a wonderful story, but I can't go through all of it today. They won't have enough hours here. Um, they then, two generations later, was the Great Pogrom. You know why they called it the Great Pogrom? Because they killed more Jews than any other previous pogrom. Uh, what happened then was Alexander II, who was the czar of all the Russias, was assassinated and succeeded by his son Alexander III. And Alexander III had as his advisor a man by the name of Pobidoshnetsev, who was a professor at the University of St. Petersburg and also head of the Synod of the Russian Orthodox Church. And he told Tsar Alexander III that the reason why your father was assassinated was that he was too liberal. He freed serfs. What kind of nonsense is this, freeing serfs? You're losing good labor. <laughs> uh, and in addition, he even had some Jewish advisors. Now, Jews were not permitted to live in St. Petersburg. Why not? Because it's holy Russia. Okay. You see, what happened was, in the 1400s, an edict was issued by the czars of all the Russia, who then were the, the dukes of Moskva, that any Jew who sets foot on holy Russian soil will be eliminated, terminated, on the day of his arrival. Now, what happened was that they conquered a number of places, or took over a number of places, like Poland, which had a large number of Jews, areas along the Black Sea that had Jews that had been there for centuries before it ever was taken over by the Russians. So this was the Pale of Russia. They were permitted to live in the ghettos in the Pale of Russia, but not in the central Holy Russia, like Moscow, St. Petersburg, and so forth. So what happened was the Baron Gunzburg was an advisor to Tsar Alexander II, now, he didn't get that title from the, from the uh, Tsar of Russia. He had actually, he was a wealthy banker, and he'd gotten that title, perhaps for a little exchange of cash, from the Duke of Hesse-Darmstadt 
in the Holy Roman Empire. And so he was a baron, and he was a railroad tycoon, and he was one of the advisors to Tsar Alexander II. But Jews were not officially living in St. Petersburg. So the baron uh, had his home in the suburbs of St. Petersburg. But he wanted, he was a Jew, he wanted to be able to have a service. And there were a number of other Jews there, also these very wealthy people who were not there officially as Jews. So he went to the Grand Rabbi of Vilna, Vilna being the center of Jewish learning, and he wanted a rabbi. So the rabbi uh, the, the, uh, then sent his son-in-law, who is Rabbi Yechilzon, to become the rabbi for the St. Petersburg wealthy Jews. Of course, he was not listed as a rabbi. He was listed as a candlemaker. And so he had a house near the, near the, uh, the baron's house, and they always had candles ready in case some Russian came in there. They showed that they're making candles. And they would conduct props. This, uh, props. <laughs> they Couple conducted of props. the service in the baron's uh, ballroom on Shabbos. And so that's how they were there. But he promised the Grand Rabbi of, Saint P- of Vilna that if ever there was trouble, he would get the son-in-law and, the, the, of course, the daughter, who was the daughter of the Grand Rabbi of Vilna, and the ch- their children out. And so when Alexander II was assassinated and Alexander III had taken over and Papi Doznetsev was letting loose this uh, terror on the Jewish community, killing tens and tens of thousands of Jews. As a matter of fact, Papi Doznetsev proudly predicted that of the six million Jews living in Russia, two million would be killed. Two million will have fled the country and two million will have converted to Orthodox Christianity. He was right about number one. He didn't quite kill two million, but hundreds of thousands. And two million Jews fled, and this was the first mass emigration of Jews to the United States. There have been Jews in the United States even in the Civil War, 40,000 in the whole country. Uh, But now you suddenly had this great influx from Eastern Europe. And so um, the... Grand Rabbi uh, of St. Petersburg, or the the Rabbi of St. Petersburg. Interestingly enough, the Baron wanted to stay behind because he was hopeful of trying to influence Alexander III to end this pogrom. Of course, Pope Doznetsev had no interest in him ending a pogrom. And so one evening, a number of people broke into the Baron's house, and after about 32 stab wounds, he was dead. But the baron didn't want his children potentially to be annihilated. And so he had, being a wealthy banker, also had money in Paris. And so when Rabbi Levitz and his family were to go to the United States, he was to escort his child to Paris, where he had money set aside so that the child would have a comfortable home. And so after the death of Baron Gunzberg, his son, who was brought up in France, after, after his early youth, uh, became Baron Gunzberg. And they were very wealthy and still are very wealthy people in France. So interestingly enough, when my daughter was in her graduation class at Harvard uh, and we were up there, I read in the Harvard newspaper, The Crimson, that a new school, of, a, an expanded school of international studies at Harvard was being funded by Baron Gunzberg. Oh, wow. The Gunzberg descendant of that baron. And interestingly enough, Part of the reason for that may have been that his son was a professor at Harvard, his eldest son, who would then become later on the Baron Ginsburg. So when I was up there, I contacted 
the Professor Ginsburg, and it was interesting. He was interested in, in what I told him about the family. He knew they had come from Russia, but he didn't know how all this had come about. Well, so much family history is lost. And I guess, you know, tragically, in all the pogroms and all of the dispersions of the Jewish people especially, a lot of the tremendous information that came from the original sources doesn't get to be used today. A lot of people don't know their ancestry. They don't really know how they, you know, how did anybody get to where they ultimately came from? So when their grandparents came here, how they got there? Precisely one of the points in my writing the series, most Jewish children today in the United States know their parents, presumably, perhaps grandparents. If they've studied in the Hebrew school, they've learned about biblical times. Everything else in between is missed. I wanted to clarify that missed. And so those six families serve as a microcosm of the history of the Jewish people. Uh, how often we hear of people who are Holocaust survivors who never tell their children about what happened. In fact, I was just on the phone uh, before the Passover Seder talking to someone who has the same name as me, Herbert Osabel, an Orthodox Jewish family. And his mother had told me the story of how they had gotten out of Germany and traveled through Switzerland and through Italy and through Spain to Portugal and finally to the United States. Now, this young Herbert Osabel, who's no longer young, he's my age, and getting up there in the ninth decade of life, knew that his parents had come there. He didn't even know the story of how, what happened to his parents. You see, a Quaker group were bringing over some Jewish children, a good, good, decent, wonderful group of human beings were rescuing some Jewish children and bringing them to the United States. And so Herbert's parents, while they would obviously miss their child, this was a chance for him to survive. You see, you had a quota. You just didn't crawl across the border like from Mexico. You had to get you got to get permission. The only way you got into the quota is that everyone on the quota ahead of you had been killed. That's the way you were able to get onto the quota to get to the United States. Well, anyway, this young fellow had come to the United States and his parents were still struggling and waiting and waiting for their time on the quota. Well, I told Herbert what his mother had told me. He didn't even know that. Wow. What had happened was they finally had gotten on the quota, and they'd been wandering for years and years, always illegal. And finally they're on the quota to come to the United States, and they have the two tickets to go on a ship that day. They bring their little valise with them, whatever is left of their family memorabilia in it down to the ship, but they can't go on the ship yet. So they go back to their little room that they had there, which was now the void. They sold everything they had uh, to raise money. And so uh, there's a knock on the door, and a woman comes to the door, and they open it up, and they look at her. She's sort of shabbily dressed, but the clothing once was quality clothing. Turns out that uh, she was a Jewish woman who was married to a physician, and they had three children. And they had been going through the same trials and tribulations from country to country uh, as illegals. And they now were on the quota to come to the United States. But they had three tickets to go on the ship that day and two tickets to go on the next ship, which will be several days later. 
they had gone through all of this together, they would like to come to the United States together. Would they switch tickets with them so that they would have five tickets for that day and then Siegfried Orsabel and his wife Bertha would go on that next ship a few days later? Now, they explained they have all their family memorabilia, not that it's worth anything monetarily, but this is all that's left of their family remembrances. They promised, the, the doctor's wife promised them just give me the address, I'll guarantee you we'll deliver it to that house. You'll take the ship in a few days later. P.S. The ship in which they were supposed to go on, which they had swapped tickets for, was sunk and everyone on that ship was lost at sea. Wow. And they came a few days later and the Hayas informed us that they had arrived so family was able to pick them up. The vagaries, why? Were they good and the other people bad? Of course not. You're living by a thread, and you never know when the thread will break. So, how you know, we don't have a lot of time in this episode to to talk about the question, the challenges that the. I know that the Haggadah in Passover says there are those in every generation who will rise up against us. We just this is Passover season, and it's in the Haggadah, but for for thousands and thousands of years, it's been overwhelmingly true, and still seems to be true to the present day. How how do we as historical people try to reconcile that for both the future and the present? The way I reconcile it is as follows. I was placed on this earth. My father taught me as a child, you weren't put on this earth simply to occupy space. You must find a calling and carry it out. I don't expect that I personally will have changed the entire world. But when the good Lord calls me, if my plus credits far exceed any of my deficiencies, then I will have done the best I can, or as good as I can. And so each of us must not say, oh, well, I can't change the world, so why bother? You should not remain silent when wrong is done. Obviously, you're not going to influence an Adolf Hitler or a Heinrich Himmler. But there are many, many people out there that you can influence the great middle like, ground, like, like, like wounded, uh, no, you know, uh, wounded uh, French soldiers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, you will influence people, and to the extent that you've helped make this a little better place for our descendants to live in, then you have done the best you can. Well, there's a word for that. It's called tikkun olam, which is to repair the world, to heal yeah. the earth. And for me, what better profession? to heal the world and to go into medicine. Which, which is why I have to have you back and do a whole show on medicine. So maybe the next show we'll do will be on some of the medicine because I have a feeling that uh, a lot of that sort of embedded hyssop <laughs> <laughs> uh, genetics has carried through in modern-day medicine. In many ways, yes. There are many things which were done. Uh, uh, Maimonides, interesting enough, as I think I mentioned before, had described, you know, avoid eating fatty foods. Maimonides was probably the greatest physician in the last thousand years. And he founded the first formal medical school in the world, in Cairo. The reason why was he was born in Spain, and he had fled to Africa, compliments of persecution, and eventually ended up in Cairo. And eventually, the caliph, the head of the Islamic faith, uh, he convinced him to 
establish a medical school. And the logic was not because there weren't doctors before that, but it was always one doctor who taught another doctor. He felt that medicine had expanded so greatly in knowledge that you needed experts in different aspects of medicine to teach this new young doctor. Of course, today we've got huge medical schools and the Internet and uh, uh, everyone's got a computer and so forth and so on. So the knowledge has expanded. Now, Maimonides, in his Guide to the Perplexed, answered an interesting question. There was a concern. What happens if gaining knowledge causes you to doubt Scripture? And Maimonides' response was, why would the Almighty not want us to learn as much as we can about the world which the Almighty had created? But you should bear in mind, you will never know everything. So have a sense of humility in your work so that you don't assume that you are omnipotent. And if you approach medicine with that sense of humility, you will be open to new ideas and new concepts which radically change what was done before. And a classic example of mine uh, is a good friend of mine who rests his soul, who was at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Judah Folkman, who was the first to announce, uh, espouse the concept of angiogenesis, that tumors produce substances that cause blood vessels to grow in and nourish the tumor. When he first presented it at the national meetings, they practically hooted him out of the room. Okay, we're going to take a quick hard break here. We're going to finish that thought in a second. This is uh, Taking Care of Business with your host, Richard Salman, WCWP, broadcasting from Studio 2 at the Abrams Communication Center. We'll be back in one minute. Don't leave the dot. Hi, this is Rory Cosgrove, and you're listening to Rich Solomon on WCWP 88.1 FM. We are back. This is Richard Solomon. Thank you for always joining me each and every week on this station, WCWP 88.1 FM, WCWP.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, if you'd like to be a guest, please uh, send us an email, fax, a carrier pigeon, whatever works. We're here with Dr. Herbert Ausubel who is a wealth of information both on uh, Judaic history, uh, the history of the Jewish people, uh, medicine, hematology, hematology oncology, and the like. In, in the last couple of minutes, we're going to ask him if he would mind motoring back to the station next week for another show, but we haven't sprung that on him yet because uh, we're, we're talking about uh, a gentleman who is talking about uh, – tumors and how tumors sort of grow their own nourishment supply to sustain themselves before right. I had to cut you off for the break. That was Judah Folkman. Judah actually was a poor Jewish boy. I believe his father was a rabbi in a small town in uh, mid-America. And uh, when he was a student at the University of Wisconsin, uh, he lived with uh, a very distinguished professor uh, on condition that he do some work in his lab. And Judah then came to Harvard Medical School. Now, he then developed the concept of angiogenesis. He said that tumors are producing substances that cause blood vessels to grow into the tumor and to nourish the tumor. If you had a heart attack, you'd love to grow new blood vessels to nourish your heart, but that doesn't happen. So when he first presented at a national meeting, people walked out of the room. I realized that he was 100% correct and congratulated him. It was obvious to me. You look at a tumor and you see all these engorged blood vessels into this tumor. They had to get there from somewhere. 
and they obviously weren't there originally. He uh, espoused this concept, and now there are a whole series of drugs that have come out, medicines, to block angiogenesis, to block this growth of blood vessels into the tumor, and it's become a major addition to our treatment of cancer. And All right. So, well, let's, let's do this. We have a minute and a half. This was an incredibly fast hour of radio. I do want to get one or two seconds in here about your book. It's called The Flower of God. It's, I, I'm sure it's available in many places, including, of course, Amazon.com. It's uh, Flower of God, and it's Dr. Herbert Ausubel, but I think Flower of God is easier to punch in on the keyword mm-hmm. search. Um, if you Google uh, Dr. Ausubel, you'll see a lot of other media formats in which he's been on television and, and the like, and hopefully this show as well. Uh, I encourage you, this is the first of six books to come out, so I hope that for all of you out there who are sort of celebrity watching, because to me, the, this is the true kind of celebrity, not the people who you see on uh, you know, E or uh, <laughs> TMZ or whatever. Uh, he's, got five, he's got five more books that are already written and in the hopper, and it's just a matter of pumping them out. So this is, this is one of those things where you really need to kind of... <laughs> You know, see, you heard it here first and see how it all uh, uh, comes out from an evolutionary basis. Time just flies. Uh, Thank you for listening. We always love to have you. Again, if you want to contact us, feel free to do so by email. But right now, we have to sign off. Be careful. Be safe. We'll see you in a week. Thanks for listening. All the best. 